0: Grace, peace, and joy be unto you from God the Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Have you ever pictured any of the gospel stories as a sitcom? Well, it's one of the ways I've sometimes described our lesson for today. I picture it like this. Jesus and his disciples are walking around Galilee and throughout the gospel. We're becoming more and more aware that these disciples are thick-headed, not the brightest bunch of characters ever gathered together. It's a sitcom, but it does begin on a serious note as Jesus says these words about his impending death, and Jesus is continually trying to share with them about his ministry and uh, let them know where they are headed, but they just don't get it. So they're walking down the road. Suddenly Jesus stops, he turns, he looks at them, and very deliberately says the son of man is to be betrayed into human hands they will kill him and 3 days after being killed he will rise again but now's where the humor comes in because the disciples really wanting to please Jesus and so they nod and they shake their heads in agreement as if they really understand what's going on but as soon as he turns back around to walk down the road they're looking at each other like what on earth is he talking about But I also think that's part of the subtlety of the comedy because I don't think that it even mattered that much to the disciples because at that point they're so full of themselves because they're so close to this amazing one that thousands are coming out to see and they themselves have now been given the power to heal and done some really amazing things and so they're up on cloud nine, a bit giddy about all of this while Jesus is talking about the humble death for the Son of Man. There's no way that disciples are going there in their minds because things are just going way too well right now. And of course, Jesus is Jesus. He realizes that they don't get it and they haven't been, and he gives them a leash long enough to hang themselves and just quietly walks along as they get into this debate, walking behind him about who is the greatest among them. And of course, you could have great fun with the dialogue on what it must have sounded like. Peter, James, and John have been singled out as a couple of times at this point as the chosen ones to go with Jesus when others have stayed behind. And I'm sure that Peter must have looked like the leader, but yet he also keeps falling on his face, culminating with those loving words, Get behind me, Satan. In fact, it almost seems like Mark is implying that because of this rebuke, the pecking order is no longer clear, which is why there is now the debating. If Peter is labeled as Satan, well, there must be room for James and John to work their way in as now the favored one. In fact, it's even later in the Gospel, after this dialogue for today, that James and John will be ask, asking to sit on either side of Jesus, so I picture some of the disciples aligning themselves with Peter, with Peter claiming that he is still the greatest while those aligned with John and some with James are all staking their claims. And I think half of the comedy of this scene would be the body language alone. Because we have Jesus that's now just oozing with humility and servanthood while those that are following him think, think that they're so great and amazing because they're following this one who's so amazingly humble and servant-focused. The irony would be thick. So the implication is almost an unconscious faking humility when Jesus is watching There doesn't seem to be any real humility among them at the time, but undoubtedly they would try to mirror Jesus even if they don't understand him. So as soon as he turns around, after they've been boasting, oh yes, Jesus, looking very serious and humble as they can. So I picture them walking along, chests out, boasting to each other, until Jesus turns around and their entire demeanor would change. But it can't go on forever as this cycle continues over and over again. Or they finally arrive at the house, and now Jesus has let them go long enough, and he calls them on it. What on earth have you boys been doing? And now, of course, no one can look away quickly enough. <laughs> Crickets. They say nothing. So Jesus once again tries to teach them. After all, it's only fair. They're going to die for this message, and they still don't even understand what they're doing so he says again whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all and then he took a little child and putting it among them taking it in his arms he said to them whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me but the one who sent me I really do think that the scene could be quite funny, yet rather sad and pathetic all at the same time. Which, of course, brings us back to our own day, how comedic and sad are our own attempts at boasting. Even those of us who are believers in this one who has told us that the whole point of life is not to be great, but rather servant of all, All too often, we are the worst at human game of vying for who is better among us. We can say that our clothes, our cars, our houses, our looks, our jobs, our family status, our stature in the community, that they all really don't matter, but we know that at some level they really do for all of us. We strut our stuff, vying for the seat of honor, while Jesus continues to come among us, saying, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. And he means it to the point of his own death. And why? Well, for one, because of our self-importance, because it has life and death consequences for others, which is precisely why he takes a child into his arms that day. During our staff devotions the other day, we were talking about the significance of the child in this passage. In our American culture of helicopter parents, the point of the story can become muted. But the point would be clearer at the time of Jesus. Infant mortality rates sometimes reached 30%. Another 30% of live births were dead by age 6, and 60% were gone by age 16 Children always suffered first from famine, war, disease, and dislocation, and in some areas or eras, few would have lived to adulthood with both parents alive. The orphan was the stereotype of the weakest and most vulnerable member of society. Childhood was a time of terror and survival to adulthood, a cause for celebration. So it is the children that Jesus gathers to himself on more than one occasion. It's the children that Jesus heals, it's the least of these that become so important to Jesus, yet his very own disciples, walking and talking with him every day, that continue to be these tragic comedic characters, just don't understand and continue to play the game of self-importance. But Jesus is clearly striking a different note. He's identifying with the powerless and letting and telling them that in his identifying with the powerless, he is doing so completely to the point of being powerless himself. So if you want to serve the one that is the most exalted in all the universe, then you have to serve those that most of the universe doesn't even see. We have much to learn from this passage about our own self-importance and lack of vision for the powerless. We can say that we understand like those disciples, but step back a few feet and observe our lives, and undoubtedly we look as foolish all too often as those disciples. Even when it comes to the plight of children, we will be incredibly protective of our own, but we can easily become indifferent to the plight of those that show up on our border. All through our daily staff devotions this week, I was noticing the arc of the lessons. Sometimes they don't all seem to fit together, but this week it was different for me. Our Old Testament and Psalms both hint at a self-absorption in the author. Woe is me. Vindicate me, O God, in the face of my enemies. My cause is the noble one. I deserve justice. Smite my enemies. These are the first two lessons. And then we are rebuked for our self-centeredness in James. And then finally we have this example of what selfishness looks like juxtaposed with the selflessness of Jesus. Jesus who will be unjustly accused, unjustly punished, who has every reason and the ability to call down God's retribution on his enemies. But instead, Jesus chooses to love them. So often we do look as foolish as those disciples, so caught up in our own self-interest and self-importance that we miss the forest for the trees. Yet Jesus doesn't give up on these disciples. He continued to love and to teach them to the end. Jesus loves us. Jesus is teaching us. He's calling us. This weekend we have our Connect weekend and next weekend we begin our stewardship emphasis for the year. Both are important opportunities for us to look beyond ourselves and invest ourselves in important ministries that look beyond these walls and help us to prioritize the needs of others, sometimes even at the expense of our own. But don't forget the promise of this. For we are trapped in an endless cycle of self-absorption when we are consumed with our desires. And the promise of the resurrection is a breaking of this cycle. And that it is in dying to self that we find ourselves in serving others. It's in losing our life, Jesus says, that we find it. Jesus looks at this world and he sees dying people. He sees it in those that are dying in their own cycles of self absorption, and he also sees it in what we all too often fail to see because we are stuck in that cycle. He sees those that are physically dying because we don't see them. So he says, Care for the widows and the orphans, feed the hungry, clothe the naked visit the imprisoned and when you do it you do it to me he says jesus looks at the dying and he offers up his life so that the world might live in him jesus calls us in the loving service in the world so that we can find life and help those that are dying Join in the life-giving ministry of Jesus for the sake of the world. Discover the joy of dying to self to live in Him. Amen.